Hello, and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Kerry Johnson bringing to you news this week from Brazil, Israel, the United States, and a sea in hell that's a celebration of the death of a fascist in history, this time from Poland. I'm going to start out with Brazil. The incoming leader of the Brazilian Supremo Tribunal Federal, which is the equivalent of the Supreme Court in Brazil, has said that the removal of former President Dilma Rousseff, who um, was originally the vice president of Lula during his first term and then took over after Lula had reached the term limit, that the removal of her constituted a coup. This removal happened several years ago and has long been identified as a sort of like parliamentary or legal coup by the left, considering that the right did not break any laws in doing so, but did sort of like illegitimately remove the president. This precipitated the rise of the right wing in Brazil, which allowed eventually Bolsonaro to take power before his defeat by Lula earlier last year. Moving on to Israel, there's been new developments in the ongoing legal battle between Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who represents the Israeli right wing, and the Israeli, again, Supreme Court. Netanyahu has released and passed a plan which intends to revise how the Israeli court system functions, essentially to prevent them from doing much oversight over the Israeli legal system and just like, you know, passing laws and oversight over the constitutionality and legality of laws, right? So Netanyahu has been trying to remove this from the Israeli system. This caused a massive amount of upheaval in Israel prior to the ongoing conflict between Israel and the Gaza Strip that is happening right now. So this different legal conflict, which is happening inside of Israel, has been recently reignited because the Israeli court says that this move to strip the court of much of its power is itself illegitimate. So what they're saying is that Netanyahu can no longer go along with his plan to revise how the court functions. Netanyahu's right-wing allies and he himself are, of course, saying that this constitutes a, a lack of unity in a time when they want Israel to be united in their attack on Gaza and the people who live there. Moving on to the United States, the first news about the United States is that some of the first Jeffrey Epstein papers have been officially released. A lot of these things have already been leaked, but this is the first time that they have been officially released like through a court so that it's public information that we're supposed to like legally be able to access, right? Because a lot of this information has already been listed before, none of it is particularly new. We already knew a lot of the people that were connected with Jeffrey Epstein's child sex trafficking ring. Uh, a lot of them are prominent politicians and prominent business people and just like prominent intellectual leaders in the United States and in the Western world in general. These, of course, include former presidents Donald Trump and Bill Clinton. Next, I want to note that the FBI has received and responded to bomb threats across several state capitals in the United States this week. These state capitals are in Connecticut, Georgia, Hawaii, Kentucky, Maine, Michigan, Minnesota, Mississippi, and Montana, quite a few. All of these bomb threats turned out to be hoaxes. None of them actually involved any explosive material whatsoever. There were also false reports of active shooters at several state capitals. This indicates some form of coordinated attempt to disrupt the functioning of, you know, state houses in the United States, or at least a, an attempt to see how effective they could be 
at causing such a disruption or in making people afraid that there was going to be some kind of violence. This is a, a form of terrorism that many people call stochastic terrorism. You know, they think that like this terrorism is identified by its by its randomness, you know, by the fact that it's just like it's just like what's happening, you know, like like people don't know what's happening and you don't know why anybody's doing it. It's just frightening in general, right? That's the idea. I don't really like this term myself because I think it denies the the motivations that people actually use for engaging in this type of terroristic activity, which is usually to disrupt a government that they don't like. And that's almost certainly what is happening here is that right-wing forces are trying to disrupt the functions of state governments in the United States. Moving on, this is a fun one, actually. A January 6th attacker has been found out by someone who matched with him on Bumble. Bumble is a popular dating app in the United States. I don't know if it's popular, if it even exists outside the United States. Apparently, this January 6th attacker was boasting about his right-wing bona fides to his potential date, and she just kept goading him into telling her more. You know, she was literally just asking him more and more questions, leading him to ultimately incriminate himself for his involvement in Donald Trump's attempted coup on January 6th of 2021. She even kept asking him questions to the extent that he he not only incriminated himself about his involvement on January 6th, but specifically he admitted to assaulting police officers on that date. And that is what he has pled guilty to because of his, you know, just like open admission in a public forum with a stranger about his participation in an attempted coup. So that was a, that was a fun one. And actually, why not? Let's continue on with some good news. In Southern California, there is a group called Moms Against Fascism. Moms Against Fascism is an organization that is sort of intentionally against groups like Moms for Liberty, which are right-wing mothers who are trying to transform the United States education system to be a right-wing group, essentially. Moms Against Fascism, conversely, profiles and shares information about local right-wing figures in their region, or in their city, or in their school district, trying to help mothers and other parents identify who it is who is trying to radicalize their kids, or who it is who is trying to transform their educational system in a radicalized direction. This is really cool. Very good news. In much less good news, polls show that GOP voters just basically like Trump's more terrifying quasi-fascistic rhetoric. I mean, it's fascistic rhetoric in that it's like the things that fascists would say, but it remains to be seen exactly Trump's relationship to fascism if he were to get elected, right? Does he need a paramilitary right wing to take power or can he just kind of win in a normal election? That remains to be seen. But the point is that these polls indicate that GOP voters just like his openly racist extreme right wing statements, like, for example, saying that immigrants are, quote, poisoning the blood, end quote, of the United States. Again, this is pretty openly racist shit. This is the kind of stuff that Nazis and fascists do say. But now we have to just be honest and say, like, this is also just the kind of stuff that Republicans say. Republicans just say these things. Moving on to more Trump legal team activity. It's come to light that the Trump legal team organized to fly credentials of their fake electors from Michigan and Wisconsin 
to the United States Capitol to shore up their attempt to prevent Joe Biden from being inaugurated as the president of the United States. Now, this was part of their plan to send fake electors, that is, people who claim to be representing the Electoral College branch of many states, for example, Michigan and Wisconsin, states that Trump really needed to win if he was going to win in 2020. These people failed to secure their proper credentials, and so they had to have them flown in in order to prevent them from being kicked out of Washington, D.C., right, to prevent them from not being listened to when they said that they were the actual representatives of the people in those states. This, of course, did not work. The fake electors were not allowed to, you know, take power here in the situation. But, you know, that was what they were attempting to do. And moving on to what I consider to be the big news this week, the Pentagon has intentionally buried a report on extremism in the military. By buried this report, I mean that they intentionally released it between Christmas and New Year's, hoping that people wouldn't pay attention. And unfortunately, they've largely succeeded, but that's why I'm telling you about it now. Now, like most parts of the federal government, the Pentagon is talking about, quote-unquote, extremism in general. And they're very clear to say, like, well, we mean all kinds of extremism, like, like leftist extremism and anarchists, but also, you know, the extreme right-wing and stuff. Of course, if you read the report and if you, you know, even if you just look at the executive summary, you can tell that most of what they're talking about is right-wing stuff because that's just what people actually mean when they talk about these things. And using the bigger umbrella term extremism is generally only something that they say in order to like get funding or to cover their own ideological butts. So here is the Pentagon doing exactly this. Now, what did they find in this report? The report is very extensive. I highly encourage you to Google it and just read it yourself. But a short summary essentially is that they find that there is more participation in quote-unquote extremist activities in the United States military than there is in the public. That alone is worrying enough. The more worrying thing is that they also note that like, well, because these people are in the military, they actually have military training they have access to military equipment, which the United States is not particularly good at keeping out of people's hands. You know, shit goes missing all the time. And especially since the United States military is essentially a big money sink, as in its purpose is to allow major companies to get a bunch of money from the federal government to make weapons and stuff like that. So stuff goes missing all the time. We know that this has happened before. We know that it will continue to happen now. I think that one of the more disturbing things about this report is that when the Pentagon considered like, okay, well, what are we going to do about this rise in right-wing extremism? Their answer is comically that they want to double down on teaching, you know, good, good military virtues like duty, honor, loyalty, following orders. Comically, these are, of course, exactly what you would want to instill in a potential fascist cadre, right? That's one of the problems with the military's relationship to fascism is that people who have been in the military are easy recruits for fascism, or at least they're like slightly more likely to join fascism because they are people who believe in the kinds of virtues that fascism extols. And they think that that should be how the whole country works. But it's also true that the military itself is generally kind of skeptical of fascism, sort of because they're like, well, we're already here. Why do we need another one of you? You know? So there's often a conflict once fascists take power or if they become big enough to contest power between the official military and fascist paramilitaries. 
So this report, pretty worrying. It essentially means that the United States military is a ripe breeding ground for fascism. Moving on to See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history. This week, I am talking about Boleslaw Piasecki, a Polish fascist. Piasecki was born in 1915 in Łódź and then moved to Warsaw. Both of these places were, at the time, in the Russian Empire. His parents were descended from small-time nobles back in the day, but that wasn't particularly uncommon in Poland for people in the middle or upper class. He attended very good schools and was very disinterested in politics as a young boy. However, he became more political as he aged, as his desire for power increased. Piasecki entered law school in 1931 and there joined various increasingly right-wing political and paramilitary organizations. He became involved in nationalist Polish politics, which again, remember, this is just after the existence of Poland came to be, after the, the, the conclusion of World War I, carving out a Polish state between the German Empire and the Russian Empire. In 1933, Piasecki became the editor of a prominent nationalist newspaper and used his position to promote the idea of a total national Polish country. Essentially, he would only allow Slavs to be Polish people, so Ukrainians were allowed, but Jewish people were not, and Germans were not. At this point, many, many, many Jewish people and many, many, many German people also lived in the borders of Poland. This is because of how, after World War I, borders were carved around sort of like idealized ethnic groups, but the people who were in those groups were not removed. This was the central conflict in Eastern Europe during World War II. It was about trying to make these nation states meet the images that they were supposedly trying to represent, right? By the late 30s, Piasecki had established a group called the Falanga, essentially named after the Spanish fascist group or named similarly to the Spanish fascist group. And it worked with Poland's already extreme nationalist Sanation Party, led by its dictator, Plasudski. By this point, Piasecki was still very, very young and was involved in paramilitary attacks on Jewish people and leftists in Poland. But this is where it starts to get complicated. In the late 30s, specifically in 39, the Germans invade, and Piasecki fights the Germans. The Germans win, of course, but... While both groups were fascist, you know, Piasecki's Falanga was fascist, and of course the Nazi Germans were fascist, they both thought each other to be racial inferiors. And so he wasn't going to be able to get the sort of position that the fascists in Western Europe got, you know, where they sort of like were allowed to run a little bit of a, a little bit of the country by themselves. Piasecki is imprisoned, and then he's released, and then he got sentenced to death, and he had to go underground. He couldn't work with the main resistance group because he was still holding grudges from before the war. He formed his own resistance group called the Confederation of the Nation, which aimed for a fascist Slavic empire between Germany and Russia. This, of course, fails, and closer to the conclusion of the war, he ended up joining up with the regular army in the wake of Allied liberation. He still tries to win some sort of, you know, concession from the Soviets, but fails. The Soviets take over Poland and create Poland as one of their buffer states within the Iron Curtain. They make Poland not an SSR, you know, so they don't annex Poland, but they do establish Poland as an officially communist country. He continues to work in Polish politics, specifically trying to reconcile Marxism 
and Catholicism. He eventually later joins the Polish equivalent of the House of Representatives, and he continues to be involved in Polish politics through to, you know, closer to the end of the Cold War, dying of old age on the 1st of January, 1979. So, Piasecki, we will see you in hell. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I've been Dr. Craig Jonathan, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. Instead of my Patreon or the Patreon of basically any other content creator, I would argue, check out Medicine Sans Frontières, that's Doctors Without Borders, the Red Cross, the Red Crescent, or the Gaza Children's Fund. Uh, If you have questions for me that I might include in a question and answer session, or if you have any other things that you want to get in touch with me about, you can get in touch with me at 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com. That's 15 minutes of fascism spelled out in all one word. I am also on Twitter at hist of the right. That's H I S T of the right. And also as fascism 15. I'm on blue sky at one five M I N S O F F A S C. That's 15 mins of fash. Also just want to note that starting in this new year, I will be consistently releasing one episode a week. It's possible that I might hit two some weeks, but consistently I'm going to be releasing on Thursday, just like I did at the start of the podcast. Great. Thanks very much, and I will talk to you next week.